Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. A top government scientist wants to help farmers, fishermen, and city planners better prepare for a changing climate. How to think about droughts, floods, fire, insect outbreaks. The ability to have an idea of what's down the road is immensely useful in planning. And there's no one place they can go. NOAA Administrator Jane Lubchenco's idea for a national climate service. Also, how hard it is to find healthy food choices in inner city shops. But people would say to me, I really want to make these changes. I want to switch to 1% milk. I want to eat more fruits and vegetables. I want to be healthier, but I can't. My bodega only sells junk food, and there aren't any supermarkets. So what am I supposed to do? Eating in the city and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young in Washington. If Mark Twain were still with us, he might say, everybody talks about the changing climate, but nobody does anything about it. Well, Jane Lubchenco does plan on doing something about it. She's the marine scientist President Obama chose to lead NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Lubchenco wants NOAA to start a national climate service, sort of like the National Weather Service, only this would forecast what climate change might mean for regions of the country over the coming decades. I caught up with Lubchenco here on Capitol Hill just after a congressional hearing on that proposal. She says we can no longer rely solely on past experience to guide our decisions on basics like agriculture, water, and land use. We have designed our cities, planted our crops, uh, designed pretty much everything based on the expectation that there was some reasonable predictability in our climate system. We're seeing now that the climate is changing. It's getting warmer and more variable Uh, We're seeing more extreme precipitation events, floods and droughts. Uh, We're seeing sea level rise, uh, ice caps melting. uh, And all of those are telling us that the climate is changing and changing in ways that are different from what it used to be. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing, you know, if I'm, uh, uh, say, uh, someone who deals with a water district in California and I'm hearing all this scary stuff about the snowpack being gone, I'm probably on the phone to someone like you saying, help me out here. What what should we do? That's exactly right. And changes from snowpack uh, to rainfall uh, have huge implications for not only how Uh, what the amount of water is throughout a year, but when it's available. And those kinds of fundamental changes in uh, the availability of water are so basic to planning, not just for city managers, but for agricultural, for traffic on rivers, how to think about droughts, uh, floods, uh, fire, insect outbreaks, the ability to have an idea of what's down the road, even though it's not super precise, is immensely useful in planning. So there are lots and lots of requests now by water managers, by city planners, 
and others for information, and there's no one place they can go. As I understand it, we have a pretty good grasp of what climate change is going to mean if you're talking about a a really big chunk of land or ocean and a really long time scale. But if I'm a community planner or agricultural planner or fisherman, what have you, that doesn't do me a lot of good. How local can we get and how useful can we make that information? I think it's relevant to take stock of how much our capacity to model has improved through time. It used to be the case that climate models were just the entire Earth, the whole thing, as a single unit. Well, fast forward to the present, and we have the ability to have models that are at the scale of a continent. And that is a very significant advance We would like to push that envelope and to go as rapidly as we can to be able to deliver information at the regional scale for the 20 to 50-year time horizon because that's the type of information uh, we need, and it, in fact, we believe is doable. Jane Lubchenco was a natural choice for NOAA. She spent decades trying to further our understanding of how we're affecting our oceans and atmosphere. She's among the country's most respected marine ecologists. Her work is regularly cited by other scientists and won her a MacArthur Genius Grant. But she's no ivory tower academic. Lubchenco's also worked to make policy reflect the science. Of course, that's now a big part of her job at NOAA, advising the president and testifying before Congress. And she steps into that role just as Congress starts a high-stakes fight over what to do about climate change. I think it's unrealistic to expect that everybody is going to agree on everything. That's just not the way a democracy works. And uh, the challenge for science is to communicate what is known by scientists in a way that is as accessible and user-friendly and credible as possible. And in this case, I think the evidence is overwhelming that climate change is unequivocal. It is time to act and to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions that are causing the climate to change. Do the, uh, the targets that the Obama administration is putting forward for reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, uh, are they up to the challenge? I believe that the targets that uh, the administration has put forward are appropriate targets. It's not clear what the exact right amount is. It is clear we need to get on with it and reduce emissions uh, as rapidly as possible. I wonder, though, if, if the public shares the same sense of urgency about this that I gather you have. I I heard you speak at the National Academies and um, you quoted the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is deaf to every plea. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residues of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words, too late. That sounds like a pretty urgent message. Dr. Martin Luther King was uh, referring to what he called the fierce urgency of now. And I do believe there is intense urgency in addressing climate change. One thing that I think we need to appreciate is the fact that there will be a lot of surprises as the climate system is changing. One of those surprises that has emerged relatively recently has been the increasing acidity of oceans. As oceans absorb carbon dioxide, they become more acidic. That has very serious consequences for life in the oceans. 
uh, and in turn for people because we rely on oceans for so many things. There is no easy fix for more acidic ocean waters, and therefore the real focus should be on reducing emissions. There is an intense, fierce urgency of now in reducing greenhouse gas emissions sooner rather than later. Jane Lubchenco is the ninth administrator of NOAA. To hear a longer version of this interview and to learn more about the National Climate Service proposal, go to our website, LOE.org. It's a twister! It's a twister! For the next four weeks or so, NOAA researchers are teaming up with some 100 others, hoping to follow in Dorothy's footsteps and get up close to a twister. One of them is Roger Wakimoto. He's director of the Earth Observing Laboratory at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, in Boulder, Colorado. The goal? To find out exactly how violent rotating thunderstorms spawn tornadoes. The name of the project? Vortex. It's actually an acronym that I came up with. It stands for the Verification of the Origins of Rotation and Tornadoes Experiment. Uh, I like the acronym because uh, when you hear the term vortex, you sort of know what we're doing. And once you understand what the meaning of the acronym is, I don't think there's any question what we're trying to accomplish in the experiment. Your study area is, what, some 900 miles uh, between Texas to Minnesota. Uh, How can you possibly be at the right place at the right time to, to get the tornado data that you're looking for? Well, to get to the right place, we're, of course, uh, depending on very good forecasts, say, one to two days in advance, that at least get us approximately in the right area. Of course, if they've really blown the forecast and it turns out we're going to Iowa and, and it looks like Texas is the best place, there, there's no way we can recover, and we'll probably miss that one event. The National Weather Service now has a warning time of about, what, 13 minutes, which is enough for people to get covered. But if you don't hear that warning right away, it's not all that much. Um, Why is it that tornadoes are so hard to predict and and monitor? There are a fair amount of large-scale storms that rotate in the Midwest, but only a very small fraction of them actually produce tornadoes. Uh, One of the big hypotheses we're looking at right now is exactly what triggers tornado genesis. You, You may be shocked by my, my statement saying that that's what we need to try to understand. But tornado genesis itself has been fairly elusive to us, even though we've been studying this phenomena for decades. So what do we know about tornado formation at this point? What are the ripe conditions for them? The right conditions, is, as I said earlier, you need a rotating thunderstorm. And actually, the ingredients for a rotating thunderstorm, we understand very well. It's really just two things. You need the air to be very unstable, which means that it just wants to rise violently upward. And for most people, what that means is very hot, humid conditions at the ground and relatively cool, dry conditions aloft. And that's very unstable air. The other thing you need is strong winds increasing with height. You get those two ingredients in the same area, then you have a very high probability of getting a massively uh, rotating thunderstorm. So that we understand. But it's that next step which rotating thunderstorm actually has the right ingredients to produce a tornado, uh, that's the missing link that we still are trying to uh, solve. What do you think you might find about tornado genesis in this study? Well, one of the hypotheses that uh, we have about tornado genesis is that it's uh, very much related to uh, downward air that's coming from the storm. And, And in particular, the downward air, or downdrafts as we call them, might have a 
particular temperature structure that, uh, for example, very cold downdrafts might not be favorable for uh, tornado genesis and very warm downdrafts uh, might be more favorable. So if someone were to observe that the air temperature were rising, um, if there were a bunch of rotating storms in the neighborhood, that might be a warning that tornado could happen? It could be. If we can prove that that's the case, then maybe we can develop some instrumentation that actually might measure that and be able to uh, predict a particular storm is going to form a tornado. We've seen uh, some major shifts in weather patterns as the Earth's temperature has has been slowly rising. Mm -hmm. Is there any connection between the perceived sense that there are more and more tornadoes now in the U.S. over the last few years and this question of, of global climatic change? That's been something we've just started looking at. These early studies have suggested that we might have an increase uh, in severe tornado activity and and over a more extensive area in the United States than we've been typically accustomed to. i got to ask you this. You're there at that gathering, that party, and somebody says, so what do you do? And you tell them, I chase tornadoes. I I study tornadoes. Mm -hmm. they got to say that's way cool. They do. I mean, that's why I got into the business. I've been fascinated by it from, from a very young age. Roger Wakimoto is director of the Earth Observing Laboratory at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Thank you. You're welcome. Just ahead, the World Health Organization calls for the phase-out of DDT. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. The insecticide DDT has been banned in the developed world for years now. But the treaty known as the Stockholm Convention does allow its use for malaria control, and it's still widely applied in parts of Africa and Asia. Well, that's set to change because the World Health Organization has reconsidered its 2006 endorsement of the malaria exception for DDT. The WHO is joining forces with the UN Environmental Program to completely phase out DDT worldwide by 2020. Brenda Eskenazi thinks that's a good idea. She's an epidemiologist at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health and has just completed a review of more than 500 studies on the pesticide and human health. Dr. Eskenazi, uh, what did you find? What health problems are associated with DDT? The studies that have come out have suggested there are associations with breast cancer. There are associations with effects on the neurobehavioral development of children. There are associations with spontaneous abortion. And there are quite a number of studies that have looked at DDT and diabetes and found an association But the most interesting work is work out of South Africa in a community where DDT was being used uh, using indoor residual spraying, where they actually spray the insides of the mud huts to prevent the mosquitoes from lodging on the walls. And they found that the men that lived there had a dose-related decrease in uh, semen quality. And it was very profound, but... There are also very, very few studies that have been conducted in the communities where DDT is actively being used in the method it's being used currently. And I gather in places where it's used to fight malaria in buildings that people will have much higher body burdens of of DDT than we typically see in the West. Way out of the range 
of what we see currently in the West and even what we ever saw in terms of when DDT was used in the United States, partly because DDT is used specifically indoors in the African communities. And so the huts are sprayed. People are not in the homes when they're sprayed, but there are pots and pans and their beds and their children's toys may still be in the homes. And then the families re-enter the homes soon after the spraying Maybe the children are playing on the floor. Maybe the children will put their hands in their mouths. So the levels that we're likely to see are going to be so much higher than we probably would have seen in the way it had been used in the United States in the 1960s. What were the effects on on humans uh, here in the United States from the use of DDT? Well, there's a recent study that has just come out following up a cohort of women who were pregnant in the 1950s and 60s, and they found that those women who were exposed to DDT before the age of 14 had something like a five-fold increased risk for breast cancer now. And these are women who were exposed back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Uh, What does it say for Asian and African women who might be getting exposed to DDT today? I think that's exactly the concern that we have. The concern is that we're exposing a population to very, very high levels of DDT now, and we don't know what's going to happen to these women or these men in the future. So in the future, we may see uh, maybe 20 years down the road an increase in breast cancer in these populations. We may see a decrease in fertility uh, sooner in time, but we have a good potential to see something based on the literature that we reviewed. In 2006, um, the U.S. was part of an initiative with the World Health Organization to really increase the use of DDT to fight malaria. In your view, how appropriate was that? I think that it was not based on good sound science. I think that maybe DDT was an important way to curtail malaria, but we hadn't done the research necessary to know whether other adverse effects are happening from that policy. For example, we have no idea what happens to the populations that are immunocompromised that are living in Africa, where much of the malaria is high, is also the same areas where HIV are high. We have no idea how those people are specifically affected by DDT. Why do you think the World Health Organization, the WHO, is changing its views on this? Well, I think that the World Health Organization now is going back to the Stockholm Convention as it was intended, which is that DDT can be used, but it needs to be phased out. And it seems that UNEP and WHO are endorsing and funding efforts that would allow replacement of DDT in the communities that couldn't afford to do anything else. And that's why DDT was in part being used. It was relatively cheap and it was easy, but there are better ways. For example, draining pools of standing water, uh, using different kinds of plants to repel mosquito lava, and by clearing vegetation. So there are other things that can be done, and that is where we have to help these communities so that they can step away from use of DDT. Brenda Eskenazi is a professor at the University of California at Berkeley School of Public Health. Thank you so much, Dr. Eskenazi. Thank you so much.
Many of the world's wild cats face dire threats. Shrinking habitat, severed migration routes, and human hunting. A nonprofit group called Panthera is dedicated to preserving the 36 species of wildcats, and it's using some very creative approaches. Its latest project aims to help jaguars in Brazil by first helping people there live better. Panthera's president, Dr. Alan Rabinowitz, has long struggled to find effective ways to conserve habitat for these big cats, which have had a deep hold on him for decades. I've been involved with jaguars since the late 1970s. It was the first thing I actually did after graduate school, and I was the first one to radio collar jaguars in the jungles and set up the world's first jaguar preserve in Belize. But since that time, we've come to realize that jaguars genetically are actually the same from Mexico through Argentina, which was an incredible piece of news when the genetic tools allowed us to discover this. And that took us into a completely new conservation model that instead of following the the old traditional paradigm of saving a species by just trying to lock it up in good protected areas, now we have been trying over the last five years to save the jaguar throughout its entire contiguous range from Mexico through Argentina. While we thought they were being restricted, they were actually coming out of the protected areas and finding their own way between large pockets of forest, even swimming the Panama Canal. That's amazing. I mean, yeah. How, how do they get across the canal? That was the first thing I wondered, and I headed straight down to the Panama Canal when I, when I got this news. And sure enough, there's a great section on the Atlantic coast of the Panama Canal, which is solid jungle up to the canal and solid jungle on the other side, and it's not that wide. It's, it's wide enough, frankly, for you and I to swim across. It's not as if every jaguar that comes there swims across, but to maintain genetic continuity, all you need is one jaguar every four or five generations to actually make it across, one young dispersing male usually, and get to the next side. And that's keeping them from uh, breaking up into separate geographically discrete populations and, and becoming separate subspecies. Exactly. One of the most important, where the largest jaguars on record have always been, is in the Brazilian Pantanal, almost the southern extremity of its range. That area has some of the densest jaguar populations we know throughout its range, and yet it's very much in threat of being cut off from the rest of Jaguar Range. Now, the Pantanal, that's a swamp, right? It's the world's largest swampland, yes. It's also, as I understand it, a ranching country. And, you know, my understanding of ranching is that they don't much like big predators, do they? Exactly. In ranching country, jaguars are viewed as cattle killers, even though the reason most cattle die on these huge, huge ranches are numerous and varied. But jaguars are blamed for almost all the cattle deaths by the ranchers. So it's been a tradition, it's been a history in much ranching country to kill jaguars on site in order to prevent them from killing cattle and thus losing money. So uh, what are you doing to try to get uh, ranchers to get along with jaguars? So Panthera was involved in actually purchasing some of the ranches which were up for sale, which allowed us to create the largest jaguar biological corridor throughout Jaguar Range. We saved a huge amount of land because there was protected area on both sides, and we then hooked it up. 
if there's any lesson we've learned over the years in conservation, it's that no matter how many laws you make and no matter how many protected areas you set up, unless you can work with the local people in these areas, then long-term sustainable conservation just will not work. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you make them see benefit in having these big cats around them? We need to know first what their greatest needs are, what, the, what their perceived needs and desires are. And in the Pantanal, they involve basically everything we all want, better lives for their children. So we create incentives or benefits for them living within this jaguar corridor. And those benefits are in the way of, of setting up schools and bringing health care. And that led us to this incredibly innovative partnership with Mount Sinai Medical School here in New York. Yeah, tell me about that. This is uh, taking med students from Mount Sinai to, what, offer services there in Brazil? We're not just bringing doctors down. These doctors also have to be trained in conservation. So when the doctors go, they don't just go there as, as medical doctors. They go there as conservation medical practitioners. This is such a fascinating approach. I know from from personal experience that often a visit to the doctor is what they call a a teachable moment, where I'm a little more receptive to messages. Exactly. Local people, often more than urban dwellers, really understand the balance between the environment and human health because they live with it every day. So when you start teaching them how maybe part of the reason why their child has this fever or why some of their maladies are occurring has to do with both their livestock and how they keep it or the fact that there are wild jaguars out there and they're actually living in a nice, balanced, wild environment. They get it. It's not a far stretch teaching them that because they intuitively get it more than many people coming in who are are instructing them. Dr. Alan Rabinowitz is president of Panthera, and he's been talking to us about jaguars and people and the land that they share. Thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Obama administration has given biofuels a major boost. The president has announced he'll tap nearly $800 million from the economic recovery package to fuel agroenergy research and speed up commercialization. And to ensure biofuels don't aggravate climate change or displace food crops for fuel, the administration also created an interagency group made up of the EPA and the Departments of Agriculture and Energy. To learn more, now we turn to Jim Lane. He's publisher of Biofuels Digest. Hi, Jim. Hi, Steve. Good to be here. Jim, let's talk about the big picture here and then get into some of the details. First, there's, what, three quarters of a billion dollars to develop advanced biofuels. Where is this dough going to go? Well, it's going to go into three buckets. And the first bucket is going to be an investment in accelerating the commercialization of cellulosic biofuels, and that is to get it out of the labs and onto the street. And the second bucket is designed to keep those plants that are already receiving some funding on their commercialization path because it's pretty hard for them to take the money they've already received and turn that into fuel because of all the financial crisis. And the third bucket is to put more money into what are called drop-in fuels, and that's a great solution for biofuels. 
What is a drop-in fuel? A drop-in fuel is made from biomass, but it behaves exactly like diesel or gasoline. It's called green diesel or green gasoline. So it's made from bioenergy, but when you put it in your car, you don't need to make any adjustments in the infrastructure. You don't need to change national pipelines. And basically, you can distribute it and use it the same way you do your current fuel. It just has a better emissions picture, and it's certainly made at home and available now. For example? Well, we can make fuel from algae, and they're a great solution. They're called third-generation fuels because they don't change the way we operate our vehicles. Jim, uh, do some math here for me. The uh, 2007 Farm Bill requires the United States to produce, what, some 36 billion gallons of biofuels a year, and that's designed to cut 11% of our greenhouse gas emissions. That would be like taking uh, some 24 million cars off the road. So what are the fuels we're going to use to hit that target? Well, we're going to have 15 billion gallons are going to come from conventional biofuels. That's the corn ethanol and soy-based biodiesel that we currently are using today. So it means that we're not going to be using too much more of that. And then we're going to get 16 billion gallons from cellulosic biofuels. And these are made from agricultural residues, such as corn stover, stalks, made from forest residues, also made from uh, waste landfills. And then we're going to get 4 billion gallons of advanced biofuels. And these are these drop-in fuels that we've talked about, made perhaps from algae and other bioenergies like that. And then we'll get a billion gallons of uh, biodiesel. And that'll be made primarily from soy and from uh, camelina and other kinds of crops like that. So A lot of criticism has been made of biofuels that they displace crops, stuff that could be used for food as well. For example, a lot of criticism of a corn ethanol program. How does this initiative address that? Well, it addresses it in two ways. It's very clever, actually. First of all, they've changed some of the definitions to make them more fuel neutral, so they no longer call for things like uh, cellulosic ethanol. They're asking for cellulosic biofuels. So, you know, we can fulfill that in a variety of ways. You don't necessarily have to make ethanol. Secondly, they've capped, and this has been for some time, they've capped the amount of corn ethanol at 15 billion gallons. And we're very close to that already. So the message from Washington is very clear that corn ethanol is here to stay, but very much in the volumes we're looking at right now. And the future is very much in these advanced biofuels that do not use, in many cases, any land because they're using residues and waste uh, matter that's already there, or they're using very high-yield substances like algae, where we get 10 to 15 times the productivity per acre that we get from corn. So it's a real game changer, as well as acceleration. So looking at the president's directive, it asks this interagency group to look at the overall, the life cycle, global warming implications of the new biofuels. How are they going to calculate that? Well, there's a direct impact that's called field to wheels, and they measure all the various inputs that go in, and some of those are from fossil fuels, such as moving fuel and moving feedstock um, to the plant and from the plant. Then there's an indirect component, and the theory here is that if you produce a lot of biofuels using existing cropland, that's going to raise the prices, and that will encourage people to do conversion of fallow land or, or land used for less profitable items, such as cattle, to bioenergy or or food production. So that's called an indirect impact, and that can have emissions. So it's very early days in measuring that. There is a model called the GTAP model, which is uh, produced by Purdue, and there's a lot of controversy in the scientific community, and there'll be a lot of discussion over the next 60 days about exactly how that's implemented. And I think that um, as we look at the details that are coming through here, I think we can see that the administration has actually come up with a really, really good way to approach this, where they've protected the past, but really put us on a, on a future course that's going to get us into these third-generation drop-in fuels uh, very quickly. 
Jim Lane is the editor and publisher of Biofuels Digest. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Just ahead, veggie power to the people, improving access to healthy food in inner cities. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, a new tool to help you shop greener. But first, this note on emerging science from Lindsay Breslau. A small green grasshopper sits alone on a blade of grass, innocently munching on the juicy stalk. It seems harmless, but beware. One day it may join a gang. In 1921, scientists discovered that the green desert grasshopper is the same species as the destructive yellow and black locust. But the split personality of the creature remained a mystery. Recently, a group of researchers from Britain and Australia linked this behavior transformation to serotonin, a brain chemical found in all complex organisms. They discovered that the nervous systems of swarming locusts contain three times as much serotonin as solitary locusts. By tickling a grasshopper's hind legs to simulate jostling by other locusts, the scientists could transform the solitary insect into a social creature within hours. To test their theory, they injected a serotonin inhibitor before tickling the legs and found no behavior change. But when the researchers injected a serotonin promoter and didn't stroke the insects, they changed color, grew large muscles, and behaved gregariously. During droughts, locusts are forced into small areas to look for food. Close contact with other locusts causes this chemical change, creating swarms that can number in the billions. Scientists hope that this discovery about serotonin will lead to research on how they could rehabilitate the violent gangs of locusts and turn them back into harmless grasshoppers. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Lindsay Breslau. When Michelle Obama rolled up her sleeves and started digging a garden on the White House lawn, advocates for healthy local food cheered. The First Lady set a powerful example by inviting Washington, D.C. schoolchildren to garden along with her. The message? The inner city, too, can have access to fresh organic food. And in these tough times, this is especially important. Government figures show that some 36 million people live in households that have trouble just putting food on the table. Jessica Elise Smith tells us about efforts in New York City to bring high-quality foods to struggling neighborhoods. It's Saturday morning at the Samaline Grocery in Brooklyn. Cesar Rodriguez tends to his customers. Soda, cookies, chips, and canned foods line the walls of Rodriguez's bodega. But among the sea of processed foods and packaged goods stands a small outpost of fresh fruits and green leafy vegetables. Piña, mango, 
manzana. Rodriguez recently added these fresh foods to his store. He's one of almost 1,000 bodega owners taking part in New York City's Healthy Bodegas Initiative. Through the program, we're trying to improve people's health and the health of the neighborhood, have people eat healthier products and lose weight, because obesity is a sickness here in our community. Low-income neighborhoods like Rodriguez's have few supermarkets or other options for fresh fruits and vegetables. Yet there are many places to buy fast food, candy, and alcohol. Sabrina Berenberg of the city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene wanted to find ways to address the many health problems like obesity, diabetes, and heart disease found in poorer areas. She found that 80% of the food markets in these neighborhoods were small corner stores. These areas um, have many more bodegas than supermarkets, and very few supermarkets, in fact. That really inspired me to, to work to make these large environmental changes to make it easier for people to eat healthier. So in 2006, Berenberg began to work with bodega owners and kicked off the Healthy Bodegas Initiative. She saw that residents wanted to change what they ate but needed help. Nobody wants to live a life of chronic disease, so the people would say to me, I really want to make these changes, I want to switch to 1% milk, I want to eat more fruits and vegetables, I want to be healthier, but I can't. My bodega only sells junk food and there aren't any supermarkets, so what am I supposed to do? And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than that. New York City's neighborhoods are not the only areas with limited access to healthy food. These so-called food deserts are found across the country in rural and urban locations. Mark Winnie has looked at food deserts for years. It's relative based on how far somebody has to go in order to get to any kind of decent, affordable food store and the means they have to use to get there. And do they, in fact, have the means? Winnie is the author of Closing the Food Gap, Resetting the Table in the Land of Plenty. In the book, he chronicles the rise of food deserts in the 1960s alongside the growth of the American suburb. With scores of people leaving downtown areas, inner cities were drained of wealth. Supermarket chains followed the wealthier client base and moved to the suburbs. They simply began to walk away from urban America. And these were communities that needed those stores more than others. Uh, They were communities that were being challenged by poverty, being challenged by some of the worst socioeconomic conditions that we've had in in the, perhaps in the 20th century. It wasn't just the lack of supermarkets that led to the growth of food deserts, but also the lack of public transportation to bring urban residents to suburban grocery stores. Winnie says nearly 70% of households in low-income neighborhoods do not own a car. As an example, he highlights the 8th Ward of Washington, D.C., which is close to the U.S. Capitol building. In this area, nearly 70,000 residents live with slim access to grocery stores. About 38% of those people are considered poor uh, using U.S. poverty standards. If you look at the landscape, we see almost no supermarkets. And we also see another characteristic of a food desert, which is a tremendous number of fast food joints. And that's what people have to choose from for food. And as a result, we see uh, very high levels of obesity. Costs from obesity and related chronic diseases are increasing. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the U.S. spends over $117 billion a year on health care related to obesity. And in low-income neighborhoods with lots of fast food and few healthy options, the obesity rate is rising. 
Over in the Red Hook neighborhood of Brooklyn, Eugene rakes leaves that he'll add to one of the compost piles lining the side of an urban farm. Then we have our compost beds over here that um, we've been processing for a long time. Um, we have one that was built two months ago, and it's almost done, but it's not, part, it's not all the way done. It's almost broken itself down. All the nutrients and stuff like that is almost broken down and created our soil that we use. Eugene is one of about 10 neighborhood teens who work at the Red Hook Community Farm. The farm, run by the nonprofit group Added Value, was literally built from the ground up. Soil was brought in to cover an old abandoned ball field. If you look closely on the outskirts of the rows of onions, lettuce, and beets, you can still see home plate and the faint white lines that mark the field's boundaries. This farm has not only increased the community's access to fresh and affordable fruits and vegetables, but also has helped change the neighborhood. For the farm, i say it was like pretty much a little better because uh, there was still a lot of gang violence and stuff like that going around here. I'm just basically proud of being here and helping out and then being able to bring healthy food to my, my neighborhood that I live in. Eugene and other teens plant seeds, harvest crops, and sell their bounty at a farmer's market in the neighborhood. Before the farm started, residents went through a lot to get fresh food. I took two buses or a car service to get food back to Red Hook. Like, you couldn't even get a quart of milk or vegetables. Kate and many other Red Hook residents who buy their produce from the farm understand that fresh fruit and vegetables are important for their health. William Lewis is a longtime resident who didn't like what he found in the neighborhood before the farm. Uh, it was dull. Well, nothing buying, not fresh anyway. You know, just regular stores. You know. Since when the farm came, I just stopped coming here because I know it's fresh food, and I like fresh. It's better for me, better for anybody. Matter of fact, you know. The farmers market has become a neighborhood gathering place, and teens at the farm not only earn money and learn how to grow food, they also learn how to be stewards of their community, a community that is focusing on changing the circumstances of its health. Efforts like this inspire author Mark Winnie. So it's the human innovation, creativity, a willingness as a community in some sort of organized social way and political way of trying to change the circumstances that they live in. And that really inspires me. Programs like the Added Value Farm and the Healthy Bodegas Initiative operate from the ground up to improve the health of people living in food deserts. They also help to close what Winnie calls the food gap that severely divides Americans. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Smith in New York City. We got string beans, snap beans, lima beans. We got the very kind of beans that I would like to put right in your fresh burger. Pretty baby, don't you see what I mean? They're the finest beans, coolest beans. They're the best beans that you could find in this or any other marketplace. What are you trying to prove with all your talk of beans? Yes, I know. There used to be a couple of kinds of intelligence, book smarts and street smarts. But longtime New York Times science writer Dan Goldman helped topple that limited understanding with his book, Emotional Intelligence. He joins us now to talk about yet another sort of intelligence. Hello, sir. Hi. Good to be here, Steve. So you're proposing that the well-rounded person should also be ecologically smart. In other words, how we think about the environment and what we may or may not be able to do about it. No, it's, it's even more than that, Steve. It's um, how we operate, you and I, as active agents in the ecological world, whether we do it in an intelligent way, one that improves things, or we just stay in our usual stupor and let things drift as they are. 
I think what we need is a social evolution. We need an evolution in how we live on the planet, how we understand our relationship to nature, how we see ourselves as active agents. That's what I call ecological intelligence. I think we've got to collectively up our level of understanding and insight into how our habits, our manufacturing systems are damaging the planet and how we each can act when we shop to favor improvements that will accelerate uh, the innovative thinking to find better ways of doing it. In other words, make it pay for companies to do the right thing. Your new book, uh, Ecological Intelligence, the subtitle is How Knowing the Hidden Impacts of What We Buy Can Change Everything, is in contrary, I suspect, a bit of, of resistance among some ecological thinkers who are quite skeptical of our ability to buy our way out of the ecological crisis that we find ourselves in today. How do you respond to that criticism? It's our habits of consumption that are driving the industrial machine, which is destroying the planet. So if you and I knew the hidden impacts of the things we buy every time we shop and we simply favored improvements and let other people know, we would shift market share in a way which makes it feasible, in fact, essential for companies to speed up the changes in their manufacturing platforms and their chemicals and so on that will make the planet a better place. Now, I see towards the back of your book, you uh, you sent me to some software that I can put on my iPhone. And I have to confess that uh, in advance of this interview, I uh, I did this. I downloaded it. The app is called Good Guide. Free app. I have to ask you this question. So do you make money off this app? I have nothing to do with it. But I I actually dreamed it 20 years ago before it existed. And I wished that there were a program that would tell us when we go shopping what the actual impacts, ecological impacts of what we're going to buy are. Then a couple of years ago, I heard that there was someone at Berkeley developing just that. I got very excited. That was one of the things that encouraged me to write the book. All right. Well, let's go shopping then with your software. Let's do that. Lovely, Steve. Let's see. So, grab your coat. Okay. I'll assume we're coming back. And uh, we'll come with our producer, Ike. Beautiful day. What were we doing inside? So we head to a drugstore a few steps away from our studio. The iPhone app is loaded with ratings of the environmental, health, and social impacts of 70,000 or so consumer products. Seems to me that we're always running out of shampoo at my house. So let's take a look here at the shampoo rack and see what we will... Well, let's see what Good Guide recommends. All right. It's over here. Well, these are all fairly big brands. Let's just uh, randomly pick one and see how well it does. Now, here's VO5. Herbal shampoo. Herbal escapes shampoo. So let's see. Find. I click on here. Search. Little wheel is spinning. Okay. It gets an overall rating of a 3.9. That's not so wonderful, is it? That's really in, uh, close to the lowest third, and the shampoo does a little better in the health. It gets a 5.0, meaning its ingredients are kind of average in terms of chemicals of concern and so on. 
but environmentally and socially it didn't do as well. The reasons are that uh, although the company has uh, a minimum of community-related controversies, you know, that might be anything from what are you doing to our local water or what toxins are you dumping in the landfills here to uh, how they're using land and so on. They have pretty good community relations, but uh, what are those X's there, those red X's? Compared to other companies, this company is one of the lowest rated in labor and human rights. It then goes on to say this company is not transparent about its corporate practice disclosures. Uh, I think what's happening there is a good guide is trying to move companies toward transparency by uh, penalizing those that don't disclose. To find out more, let's go into, uh, let's, let's look into category to see if there might be a choice that good guy would prefer. So at the very top of the list, we see Burt's Bees, Nurture My Body, Suave Shampoo, 8.4, uh, Finesse Shampoo. Those aren't terribly expensive. Well, you know, I once looked at uh, the 10 shampoos that are rated the complete safest and the 10 that have the most chemicals of concern in them. And by far, the single most expensive shampoo of the 20 was in the 10 worst patch. So you can't equate cost with safety, with environmental impact. It's a common assumption, but we really need to challenge our thinking here. And also, the more large companies get into the game of getting better and better, the cheaper the good stuff is going to be. Well, we're back at the Living on Earth offices. Thanks for taking me shopping, Dan Goldman. Steve, it was a real pleasure. I never had such fun in a store. (laughs) Dan Goldman's new book is called Ecological Intelligence, Knowing How the Hidden Impacts of What We Buy Can Change Everything. Thanks, Steve. You can try your own shopping list on Good Guide, even if you don't have an iPhone. Find out more by visiting our website, LOE.org. By the way, we spoke to the Alberto Culver Company, the makers of VO5, about their poor review in The Good Guide. A company spokesman says they're looking into it. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Ike Sreeskenjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Our interns are Lindsay Breslau, Liz Gross, Phil DiMartino, and Christine Parrish. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwin. And I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org. And 
Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.